Well, as I said this morning, I'm going to finish up the second part of what we started to look at this morning. It's important that we take some time and just think through some of the practical ways that God uses the, the plan that we're a part of in our walk with Christ in order to grow our faith. I love the fact that as we talk about this, we can get practical as to how we might apply the scriptures in the things that, that we must be about. They're called disciplines for a reason because they are to be practiced. They are to be the regular course of the believer's life. Don't let anyone tell you that, that somehow the Christian life is passive or in some way because it is the grace of God that grows us, then somehow we have nothing to do and not at all. We talked this morning about the, the principle of the Word of God and its work in us. Clearly, when we talk about saturation with God's Word, we're talking about our exposure to it and our faith as we come to it. I'll just mention to you on a practical level, I know that gets difficult in the busyness of the, the world in which God has placed us, and I never concerned myself too much with how busy the world is getting. God knew that it would be in this time frame, in this era, that he would place us as believers, and he gives us the tools to grow and to be a light. So I'm not really concerned with where technology takes us or how much information comes at us. It may be indeed a lot. It doesn't change the fact that our God has given us his spirit and the truth from his spirit as our tool, our our benchmark. It is the grid through which we filter everything. It is clarity, absolute piercing clarity. Look for a moment at 1 Corinthians 2, and we'll chase a few passages around, but in 1 Corinthians 2, just, just to note what took place in our conversion, and this ought to help you, sometimes people are looking for answers, and they haven't yet looked to the specifics of God's Word, but I love what we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 about what has happened to the believer. In your natural state, as we've studied many times, verse 14 indicates that you do not accept the things of the Spirit of God. So, in conversion, you now accept the truth. You not only accept the truth as inspired and inerrant, but you accept it in all of its implications. You accept it as not only inspired, but the work that it promises to do. We accept the things of the Spirit of God. Whatever he says, whatever he's doing, however he convicts, the supernatural work that he does, the believer receives that and accepts it, whereas before we did not accept it. Why? Notice verse 14. Because they're foolishness to the unbeliever, and he cannot understand them. The first has to do with the willingness, and we weren't willing to do it. The second phrase has to do with the ability. We don't have the ability to do it. We cannot understand them. Why? Because they're spiritually understood, spiritually assessed, spiritually examined, and evaluated. Go back to verse 13. Uh, The apostle Paul, when he was writing this, was talking about not only the apostolic Um, work of writing the scriptures down under the inspiration of the Spirit and giving it to the church, 
Therefore, he says, these things from God we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. So now the Spirit of God in the life of the believer, beginning, of course, with these wonderful uh, men chosen by Christ to, to be the ones that would write down Scripture for us, these are words taught by the Spirit, and spiritual thoughts are combined with spiritual words, or in, in other words, interpreted that way. The Spirit of God teaches us the truthfulness of Scripture and draws out into our hearts and minds the way that they implicate our life. Prior to Christ, you didn't have that. So when we come to the Scriptures in this wonderful discipline, it is because we know a supernatural work is going to take place. Now, me coming to the Scriptures has no power. In fact, we could say that all of the means that I'm going to talk about, all the spiritual disciplines that we have looked at many, many times, and we'll just sort of review tonight, none of them in and of themselves um, have power. That is to say, I could do them, I could practice them, and without the work of God, without the supernatural work of God to overcome my flesh and renew my mind and my spirit, nothing would happen. We call them the means of grace because they are the means of receiving and accessing the work that God has promised to do and is doing. Look at Philippians 2 for a moment. You see this very reality. I am called by God to be disciplined in the things of Christ by the truth given to me through Christ. And so I am to always be working and laboring to see my salvation come to fruition. Verse 12. Work it out with this humility and faith, fear and trembling, reverence and brokenness, contrition, a willingness to be pliable. You get about the business of living out your salvation in all the ways God promised to bear fruit. But know this, it is God who is at work in the believer. It is his will, it is his work, purposed by his good pleasure, and it is the power of God that is doing it. So any action I do, I know we talk about this, you know, how do I know it's in, it's in my power or God's power? We're going to talk about that, the, the test of humility, a humble submission, and even conformity to the, to the character of Christ. These are all signs that the work is actually happening and not in your own strength. But the actions themselves, the actions themselves, me reading my Bible, me praying, me singing praises... Unless God does his work, these actions in and of themselves are powerless to make me holy. The power is in Christ. The power is by his spirit. The power is through his written revelation. As I come to it, God then dispenses his work, his grace, his power. Now, I must come. I must be a part of these disciplines. Why? Because God designed them to be the instruments through which I would then access his wonderful power to grow. But if, they, if he did not act, if God did not move, if he did not empower me in my sanctification, these would be a self-help project. That's what they would be. 
But we are to come, as I said, in humility and faith, and God promises to move. He promises to be gracious. He promises to operate. He promises what his word promises. Now, the reason I say that at the outset is because when we start to evaluate what we've been doing and whether or not there's growth, I want us to be careful, very careful about our way of evaluating things. We live in a culture where everything is fast, as I said this morning. We are driven in an evangelicalism by sort of the quick and dirty, the get it done fast, the abridged version, the summarized version. Sanctification is not summarized. In fact, God must move, that is for sure. But sanctification is going to involve the believer in not easy work, but hard work. The privileged labor of sanctification. It is, as Paul writes to the Thessalonians, called a labor of love. It is a work. And he uses terms and, and their normal New Testament language for exhaustion. Working to exhaustion laboring to exhaustion in the Christian life. This is what we're called to. As one writer said, our call, in other words, is not to grow ourselves, but to present ourselves to God through the means he has provided. And these spiritual postures receive God's grace as he's promised. And it would be wrong to assume that these practices are easy. In actuality, they require very hard work Many of them, as we know from experience, are deeply testing, deeply trying. Why is that? Why do they have to be deeply trying? Because, beloved, they are designed, listen, to put the believer in a spiritual frame that runs contrary to the fleshly dependence that we love so much and the worldly fascination that we have with Vanity Fair. The means of grace, these disciplines that we practice over time, they're laborious because it is breaking down our self-reliance, slowly stripping us of our self-exaltation, self-preservation, all of the ways that we don't want to believe God in the flesh. This labor is a process of breaking all of that down in, in the... In the work of humbling God's people under this great work of being conformed to the image of Christ. They do not grow us in and of themselves, but when we come to God in humility and faith practicing them, God promises to bring us to a low place and to rebuild us and to encourage us and to strengthen us. It is going to be his work to bring us low. This is precisely why James chapter 4 says, look, I want you to, to be miserable and mourn and weep. You say, man, what a discouraging message that is from James. But he says, I want you to be miserable and mourn and weep so that you are in the process of seeing your hands cleansed and your hearts purified so that you're no longer double-minded and you're not always laughing all the time, always searching for some high-octane uh, exuberance because God is the one who has to turn your, your sadness into real rest into a real clean conscience. It's the work of God to bring you out of a humbled state into that place where it says that he exalts you at the proper time. 
And so sometimes we have this idea that the spiritual disciplines are drudgery or, or they're just sort of this external thing, this ball and chain that Christians have around their leg. And boy, boy, it'd be nice to live like some people who profess Christ. They don't seem to have a care in the world about what they're doing. And then we have another whole camp that comes along and says, listen, stop trying so hard. You're free. Man, isn't that an attractive message? I mean, years ago in the, in the higher life, deeper life movement, they coined the phrase, let go and what? And let God. Well, that phrase still lives on even today. And it is actually not true. When we say yieldedness, we're not saying get your hands off of it and just sort of let God behave through you like the old Dr. Ian Thomas used to teach. It's, just, it's not you behaving at all. It's God behaving through you. Well, if you mean the power of the Spirit must do the work, yes. But if you mean I'm passive, no. Why do we get attracted to those kinds of things? Because we do not like to imagine that the Christian life is going to involve a strain a stretch, a work, a labor. And we don't like to imagine that that's a privilege and a joy. And the end result, as James says, is endurance. How do you grow in endurance? When you have been brought low and you stay in the valley of the shadow with the Lord and he's with you and you come out the other end having walked with him and he carried you and sustained you and you knew it and you experienced it. And somebody walks up to you and says, how did you get through that? It was only the Lord. And now there's a robust strength because you knew you were brought to the end of yourself. You're brought low. Look at one more text, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, very familiar words from the Apostle Paul, but notice how he says what he says here. He had, he, he had what he calls surpassing great revelations. I'll say he went to heaven. And not just the troposphere or the stratosphere, he went to the third heaven, ostensibly the place where God dwells. And he went there, and he wasn't even able to articulate whether it was in the body or out of the body, he says here. He just knows it was very vivid, very real, very graphic, and he was taken there, matter of fact. And he's forced to talk about it by the Corinthians, though he... He didn't want to talk about it. He calls it foolish to talk about. Why? Well, we know. We've, we've studied this. It's just, it's unrepeatable. It's not guaranteed for every believer. It's unrepeatable, and you can't verify it. He said he went, but was any, were any of us with him? No. And he was forbidden to speak about what was there. I, I, I love that, because you know why God does that? We would have worshipped Paul, and we would have worshipped what he said was, heaven was like. You don't, you don't think that's true? How many books about people who've said they've gone to heaven become bestsellers just like that. We want to know what's on the other side of that threshold. We don't like what God says about it. We want to know what some human being says about it if they said they went there. Well, they haven't gone there and come back. It's all lies. Paul actually went and said, I'm forbidden to speak about it. It's not, it's not good to speak about the specifics and the details. But he said, I, for, for the sake of the foolishness of these false teachers challenging you that they've had more revelations, 
I've had surpassing great revelations. I was in the third heaven, but here's the deal. God gave me the surpassing greatness of these revelations along with a way to keep me from exalting myself. And he says, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Strong language. To keep me from becoming conceited, some of your translations say. And so concerning this, other than the daily prayer and agony of this thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, other than the daily prayer, on three particular and very formal occasions, he implored the Lord, strong language, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Underline that if you're inclined to write in your Bible. Power is perfected in what? Weakness. God uses the labor of the disciplines of grace to humble our self-reliant tendencies. To make us dependent and to strip us of worldly captivation. The means of grace are not in and of themselves a power. But God's grace is powerful and chooses to use them. And so he says, all right, then I'm going to boast about this humbling process, my, my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. That is to say that it's on display. Same thing he said in 2 Corinthians 4. I've got, I'm basically this clay pot and the gospel's put inside of me so that the power on display may be of God. I'm weak, but when I'm weak, when I'm at the end of my uh, tendency to stand on my own, then I am strong. What? That's so personal. He didn't say God is always strong. Of course God is strong. But when I'm weak, then suddenly, instantly, certainly, I'm strong in the power of God. I just needed to say that because I don't want us to fall into this error of imagining that, that this is a process that needs to be fast. The Lord knows the pace, beloved. He knows the pace. He has designed the pace. He's designed your season of life. He knows all things. He counsels you with his eye upon you, Psalm 32. He knows the specifics of your life. I don't know why we don't read and study Psalm 139 more. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. The Lord formed you in the womb. He knew before there was even one word on your tongue what you would say. And he, before there was a day of your life, your first breath, God had ordained every day of your life. It's a process. He knows it. He knows what it will take, and he calls us to labor. He calls us to strive. He calls us to get in the battle and, and count it a privilege. Have you forgotten, the writer of Hebrews says? Have you forgotten what the scriptures say? That he loves those whom he disciplines? And he scourges those whom he's welcomed. And you have not yet suffered unto blood and you're striving against sin. Stay in there. I think we have a tendency to default to how fast everything else comes to us. 
See, what's the ultimate danger of that? Weak faith in a church, a church with weak faith, a church that, that jumps in and out of Scripture without any real deep thought. That, that's for the scholars. That's, that's for those guys. That's for the seminary students. I, you know, it's just, it's just too difficult for me. Can I just tell you something practical? When you listen to God's Word, I don't care who's teaching it or, or whether you're just reading it or whether you're reading a book and you take, in, take into passages and things like that, when you look at the Word of God, you're called to ponder and think. And we are a culture of excuse makers. Oh, it's too hard. Oh, too many big words. Look, what, you, you can't expand your vocabulary? A little? Do we want it to bring it down to the, the person that doesn't want to work hard at anything in terms of terminology? You know, that's how we've lost salvific terminology, is we're afraid to, we're afraid to study words like propitiation. But guess what? It's the, it's the best word in our English language to describe that whole process of what the Bible says God did in, in assuaging his wrath by the sacrifice of Christ. It's the best word. You, you can't just give these things up. You can't just turn terminology in the Bible into weak words because we're lazy. I, I'm, I'm just saying, if you approach God's word with a little more labor, a little more discipline, you, can, you will grow in your understanding and your grasp. And I just think we, we default too quickly. Even when we think about preaching and how it comes across to us, we, we just don't want to do the hard work. Do not do that. Don't default to imagining that it's going to come easy. Get yourself humbled. Get your mind humbled. Get your heart humbled. Your spirit humbled. Come to God's word and say, Lord, this is so hard for me to understand. What a grace in my life to see that there's something hard to understand, and I'm going to have to press into that text tomorrow, and I'm going to have to press into that principle tomorrow, and I'm going to have to apply it for the next several months because I'm just not sure I grasp this yet. What a privilege in my life, Lord. Take me down that path. Take me on that journey. We are seeing in the church today wholesale abandonment of that kind of labor, and yet these are disciplines of the Christian life. How long does it take to learn a discipline? Anybody know? Ah, the theories and the books, you know, they're all different. But I know in my own life, you know, to, to develop a habit... It takes about a steady six or seven weeks of straight doing it every day to develop a habit. And for some of you, it's a lot faster. And for some of you, perhaps a little bit longer. But, but it's a discipline to do something like that. I want to learn this habit. I want to have this habit in my life. I want to remember this. I want to think about this more deeply. And, and I know you can do that because you go to an employer and and when the employer lets you sign on the dotted line, okay, you can come to work for this much money, um, and he says, you have to learn these things, you don't really balk at that. You just get after it. You go learn it. Otherwise, you don't get your paycheck. <clears throat> and so sometimes it's rather embarrassing that we're more interested in money than we are in what the Lord says he will do if we will discipline ourselves in these things. So the, the means that God has prescribed for his people are to be diligently pursued. They're to be practiced. And as I said, it's not according to our power, but his. And he promises his power. Look at Colossians 1 for a moment. I love this. I mean, whenever I think, Lord, I, I just don't know whether, whether I can get this done or do this. I love 
what Paul says here. <clears throat> he says, we, uh, Colossians 1, verse 28, we proclaim him, we admonish every man and teach every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. There, there is good, there's a task for you. The Apostle Paul and the preachers and missionaries planting churches all over had people coming to Christ by the thousands upon thousands, and they are admonishing every person, teaching every person with all wisdom so that they may present every person complete in Christ. That's the goal. That is to set the bar pretty high. For this purpose, Paul said, I also labor, same exhaustive terminology, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. I love that. So on the one hand, Paul acknowledges here, it is the power of God that works within him. But he also says, for this purpose, I labor. I mean, if there's a spiritual task to accomplish, I'm going to labor. Look for a moment at one more uh, from the Apostle Paul's pen, 1 Corinthians 9. This will be really familiar to you, but always good to read and remind ourselves. Sometimes people in the, in the confused, um, over-realized grace movement, they, they, they don't want to talk about striving, and I just have never heard them do an exposition on this passage. Because you just can't get away from what Paul says here. In 1 Corinthians 9, notice he says... Verse 19, I'm free from all men. That is to say, I don't live for men. I live for Christ and the freedom of the gospel. But I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Man, if God wants to put me in someone's life and, and it means I'm going to be a slave to, to um, the, what that's going to require, the labor that it's going to take, the sacrifices, I'll do that, that they might come to know the Lord. So to the Jews, I became as a Jew. Whatever dietary laws they were still having hang-ups about, I didn't exercise my dietary freedom and eat in front of them in an offensive way, he would say. Because they're under the law. They're struggling. And I want to win a Jew. They're battling with those dietary laws. And, and so when I'm with them, I'm not going to step on their sensibilities. But as under the law, though I myself am not under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. And if it's a Gentile, verse 21, someone without the law, then I'm, I'm able to, to live in that environment pretty comfortably, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. In other words, I, I look to the holiness of Christ in my life and the love of Christ that reaches out to sinners. And so I'm, I'm willing to do that, that I might win those who are outside of the commonwealth of Israel. So that's what he means, verse 22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. I will sacrifice anything, he says. And notice verse 23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I might become a fellow partaker of it. Now, you're saying that is going to require a lot in the disciplines of the Christian life. Well, notice how Paul describes it. Do you not know that all those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? So I want you to run that you might win. What's the task God gave you? If it involves these disciplines, what a privilege. Whatever the task is he gave you, run so that you may win. You don't sit on the sidelines. You don't say, ah, they're not that important, or that's for those people, or, you know, I'm just really not able no, you run. You've been put in the race. You run it with endurance, and you run in such a way that you may win. 
Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a crown that perishes. But we, an imperishable crown, so I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. I discipline my body. I make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. By the way, beloved, he's not talking about working out. <laughs> he's talking about his passions. The, those things that God weans us from when he humbles us in the disciplines of the Christian life. That great work of humbling, he brings his passions underneath it so that he's not controlled or enslaved by anything that is not of Christ. He doesn't want to be disqualified having preached that message to others. So, the discipline of the Word of God, saturation with the Word of God is where we began. Let's just look, work through these other ones in our remaining time. We have looked at these before, but I just want to kind of look at them as to how they strengthen faith. So, a discipline of grace, according to Romans 12, is worship. Worship. And by the way, we're not talking about the music time. I know the church has gotten all confused about that. We even call people worship leaders, and, and I, I get that, but... I don't understand why we, why we don't broaden that back to where it needs to be because worship is not just the music time. And frankly, you could, you could be like Israel of old. Take away your noise of all of your songs when your hearts are far from me. You can have all the great music you want and not be worshiping. What do we mean by worship? Well, Romans 12 says that you, you lay down your life as a living sacrifice. This is a discipline of grace to lay down your life as a living sacrifice. Why is it a discipline of grace? Plain and simple, you die to self. Plain and simple. Faith cannot grow if self is taking over, if self is ruling an area of your life. You've got to die to self. Now, you're not going to die to self all at once in every area of life. Thankfully, the Lord doesn't overwhelm us with that task all at once. But every little way that he is revealing... Areas where self-rule is there, your own autonomy. You don't listen to God's word. You're stubborn. You, uh, you are undisciplined or lazy or unbelieving, and it's a pattern. God knows that, and he's going to go to work in that area. Any area like that, the discipline of worship is to think of, of the fact that you're not your own. You're bought with a price, and you are to lay your life down in self-denial to die to self. And so, Romans 12, 1 and 2, basically says all of life is a way to honor God, a way to try to figure out how to please the Lord. Not that he isn't pleased with us in Christ, but to honor his word. <clears throat> Trying to please the Lord, Ephesians 5, 10 says, to find ways to honor his word. To search out in your life ways to honor him in a greater way. That is the discipline of honoring him with your whole life, your affections, your desires, your motives to honor him. What's that going to mean? It means that this saturation with God's word is going to have to test your heart. Every time you understand a truth from scripture, it, 
is put up as the grid through which you're going to pass your desires and your motives and your thoughts, and you're going to look at them. And you say, Lord, I, I notice that that principle in Scripture that I've been pondering and meditating on, your spirit is now raising into my consciousness the idea that I have an idolatry over here, that I don't obey your word over here. And I notice the way I treat that group of people is not what you have just taught me in that scripture. And I've got to die to self so that I can honor you and lay my life down in self-denying sacrifice as a living sacrifice. So myself has got to go in that area. So Lord, I'm going I'm to seek to please you and seek to honor you by bringing that area under your word. And in that sense, then, I'm going to offer myself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you, which is the only reasonable response to the gospel. It is my spiritual service of worship. And by the way, that terminology, spiritual service of worship, is Old Testament terminology about being poured out. So the whole idea of sacrifice is there in Romans 12, 1 and 2. The pouring out of yourself for the sake of what God calls you to do in obedience or treatment of others or whatever he calls us to do. Worship is a discipline of grace. The death of self and the offering of your life to Christ as a living sacrifice. Are there areas of your life you won't give him? You won't consider? Are there uh, places you won't go? Are there... uh, People you, you will not, um, you, you, friendships you just cannot sever, you, you will not. Are there relationships that ought not to be and you know that and you just won't lay them on the altar of self-sacrifice for the sake of honoring the Lord? Are there um, things that you think that the scriptures are now confronting? It's confronting your worldview and you've held on to that worldview. It's been precious to you. Are you... Are you going to lay that down in an act of worship as a spiritual discipline that grows your faith? Is that what you're going to do? Or are you going to hold on to that area? You know, again, Psalm 32 warns us not to be a mule. Not to be a mule. <laughs> we got a little hilarious video from my uh, daughter and son-in-law, Jessica and Steve. They, they got a little mule. And uh, it's now their pet. And I mean, and so the, in the video, the, the person that was bringing it to their property had it on a rope and it just kept stopping and just staring at them and doing its mule thing. And I thought, yep, there's a mule. It's a reason they're, it's a reason they're stereotyped that way. And in many ways, um, the analogy then fits what happens when we won't give the Lord an area but a discipline of grace that grows your faith is that as the saturation of your mind with truth begins to reveal that area, you've got to take that to the altar, lay it down and ask the Lord to give you the grace to move forward and killing your own selfish desire and your motives and your hold on something and tear down the idol, tear it down by faith and humility. Another discipline, prayer, obviously. We looked at that many, many weeks ago, so I won't belabor it, but Philippians 4 tells us that we are to supplicate with God. Paul says to pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. And then 
Colossians 4.2 is probably one of the most crucial. Devote yourselves to prayer. Devote yourselves to it. It's a discipline of grace to open your heart to God. And he's not talking about a public setting or a formal setting or an informal setting. He's just devote yourself to the dependent response of prayer with God, to talk to God, to bring your needs to God, to supplicate with God, to talk about what is crucial about your heart, to open up your heart to God in prayer. Lord, I struggle with this. Lord, I need your help over here. Lord, I'm not as honest in this area, and yet you know it all, oh God. And so prayer is a is a discipline of grace because it, it exposes and even then brings about an examination of your convictions that you hold to. And when you pray, you, you exercise faith, you strengthen faith because you're saying, Lord, I'm laying this before you. I have to let you do with it what you choose. And sometimes we pray to manipulate, right? James chapter 4 says sometimes you pray, but your desire is to spend the answer on your own pleasure. And so you do not receive what you ask for because God loves you and he does not want to give you what will take you further into weak faith. Then James also adds that sometimes you don't have what you, what you need because you don't even ask God. You don't even pray dependently at all. You don't even bring it before the Lord. And we're commanded then to build into our lives this discipline. And it shouldn't be difficult. I think I've told you before that beginning of my Christian life, learning this discipline um, in my own personal talk with God, in my own personal walk with God, I thought it was going to be a cakewalk. I thought, wow, there's so many needs. I'm so burdened for my family. This should be no big deal. And it was a big deal. It was hard to, to come before the Lord and to humbly express the the passions of my heart, the difficulty. It was very, very hard. And even then, praying as as you need to with the people of God, that is challenging. It is a work of faith. And um, But it's a discipline that grows your faith because God isn't so much concerned with eloquence or any of those things. He just wants an honest expression in thanksgiving of what is burdening his people from the needs of others to your own needs, from seeking forgiveness to asking God to give you grace to forgive others, and everything in between. So we're involved in the saturation of the word. We are involved in this dying to self as an act of worship to grow our faith. We're involved in the discipline of growing our dependence upon God in prayer. And then... um, I love to talk about the fact that at the beginning of a Christian's life, the Lord commanded us as a means of grace to identify with him publicly in the body through baptism. So baptism and discipleship, we'll just put those in the same grouping. Baptism is your testimony, listen, of separation from the old life. I don't think that gets spoken of often enough. I think uh, the world has leaked into the church and flooded into the church to such a degree that people 
People imagine separation from the world isn't what's involved in the Christian life, but it is. Separation from the world begins in that bold public declaration that I identify with Christ, and if I identify with him, I bear the reproach of Christ. So it doesn't really matter whether it's a season where the people love Christians or a season whether they hate them, I bear the reproach of Christ. How do we know that? When I come to Christ, I obey him in the very first command, and that is to be baptized. If you have come to Christ and you have not given a public testimony of your repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism, then at this point you must obey the Lord and get that done. It is a means of grace in your life. It is to identify with Christ and always then you have that as your reference point for your separation from the old life. Baptism itself has no power as a ritual, but it represents your identity with Christ and the old life dies and new life lives on and you do it in front of the body of Christ because we can all testify then that You're now a part of God's people and you're held accountable. What a discipline of grace that is. How many times have we seen somebody in the waters of baptism and then when they have a weakness or an area, some people even stray from the people of God for a while. We have to put them through the process of church discipline a bit to call them to repentance. And we often speak, hey, I heard your testimony. I heard you profess that you were separate from the world. What are you doing? What a discipline of grace in their life. What a strengthening of their faith. And then discipleship. It's a strange thing, isn't it, that discipleship, which, by the way, God calls us to and is not an option, is, has fallen on hard times in evangelicalism. Uh, I, I have no idea how that could possibly be. Look, the Word of God produces a body life that is equipped such that We understand the crucial nature of helping one another become better followers of Christ. Stimulating one another to love and good deeds, Hebrews says. And so discipleship is not an option. We go into all the world, we make disciples. That isn't just that we see them converted, but we walk with them in their Christian life. We bring them into the church. We walk with one another in the Christian life. What a discipline of grace. And I love the fact that at Grace Emmanuel, there's a growing organic culture of discipleship that just feeds on itself. And I, I love to see the, you know, the Christian who's learning something, talking in the circle of their friends about it, and their friends get challenged by it, and then everybody gets elevated and stirred up to greater good works by that one moment of someone's growth and the body grows Ephesians 4:16 says it builds itself up in love so baptism and discipleship is a a discipline of the Christian life you know you know what else i love about that it's an ordinance of the church baptism is you know the younger generation grew up without an ecclesiology it just got lost the idea that there was to be parameters in the church and things we do in the church and this is the part of your life you know the whole idea was oh in the pragmatic movement was you know our family life and our personal life is is around which everything revolves and then church is added to that and I actually go to a church that makes it really convenient right it's not your grandma's church they would say and it's a one-stop shop and I just pull in pull out so it's one hour at the most 
And there was one church and one movement that started years ago, decades ago, that actually said, you don't even have to come in the church. We'll put it on a radio station. Back in the day when there were radios, you guys, you, you understand that. We'll put it on the radio station. You just come in the parking lot and park, and, and you'll be out in an hour. And by the way, on the property, there's a place where your kids can get some food, and there's a dry cleaner, and it's a one-stop shop. And so all those people coming up in that generation had no idea, wait a minute, the church has parameters, disciplines, requirements, things that you must do, even membership. <gasps> Did we say the big M word, membership? Whoa, membership. People say, oh, membership's not in the Bible. Oh, yes, it is. People knew the church and the assembly they belonged to, and they were shepherded as such. And the shepherds of that church knew the souls of those people and had leadership structures that were beginning to trickle down as they cared for the souls of those sheep, and they would be held accountable for those sheep. And they knew that people were part of those churches. Look, I love the fact that you're called to be baptized and join the church. And that leads to another discipline of grace, the Lord's table. We just had a wonderful time Wednesday night around the Lord's table. Look, that is not an option for you to come and be unified with God's people, to celebrate the cross with God's people, for the Spirit to do a major, unique work in the corporate dynamic to build you up in the faith. That is not an option. To pray to have your heart cleansed so that you don't partake in an unworthy manner. It's a discipline of grace. It's a means by which your faith is strengthened. Man, the, the new generation of professing believers totally missed that. I think they're starting to get it now. I'm starting to see a, sort of a resurgence of young people joining uh, a good church. Starting to realize, wait a minute, there's accountability here and there's shepherding here. And I can bring myself under that because it's protecting my soul and my life. I love that. We're starting to see that. There's a few more here. How about corporate praise? Corporate praise. Singing. It isn't the sum total of worship, but it is a part of it. We talked about that before. When you were brought to Christ, God made you a singer. You might not like the sound that comes out, but you're a singer. You praise the Lord. You praise him all day long in your heart. You make melody in your heart to the Lord, and you do it in the corporate worship body so that, so that we're edified. I think I mentioned to you some frustrations that we have seen out of the pragmatic movement where everything's become kind of a concert, and no one, no one knows what the other person is doing in the room because there's just lights up on a stage, and all the lights are out, and nobody can, can sing with one another. It's just them alone in their little whatever cocoon of feelings. And that is not the discipline of praise. The discipline of praise is the corporate dynamic of teaching and admonishing one another through the theology we sing to one another. Ephesians chapter 5 says it. You are controlled by the Spirit of God, and the result is psalms and hymns and spiritual songs making melody in the body with one another, teaching one another, singing to one another in praise. God designed that. I know some of you don't like that because you came out of, I don't know, whatever background you came out of, and we can barely see your lips move. I don't, know, I don't know how to help you 
except to say, you are a singer and a praiser of God as a Christian. And when you come to the body of Christ, you are to praise. And do you know what God says? He likes it loud with our voices. Shout to the Lord, the scriptures say, Psalm 96. Tell of these things. Sing them out. If it's a new song in your soul, it comes out in praise. Sure, privately, yes. But corporately and wonderfully. You don't, you don't get to grow in your faith if you're all about your little quirks and preferences and shut down and I don't want people to hear me and, and I didn't like that song and that arrangement, and the music here is boring. Look, this isn't, this isn't about you being worshipped. <laughs> this is about praising God as a discipline of grace to grow your faith. I'll tell you, I have been blessed to be a part of church ministries that love to praise God together. That is a grace in your life, beloved. That is a wonderful, sanctifying grace. But it's a discipline. You know how it is. You don't always feel like it, do you? Man, we sometimes need the music to crank it up. Crank it up. I'm not feeling it. I, I just, I need something to, to really think through. I need to be challenged through song. And our music ministry does a great job. But it's a discipline. Especially when you come in those doors and you don't, you haven't really been walking with the Lord. You haven't really faced off with the Lord. Your heart's not right. Man, it's a discipline to come in and praise with God's people and to have your heart filled with thanksgiving. Well, here's a few more. Trials are a discipline of grace. I don't mean the trial itself. The trial is brought by God, but enduring them. To endure tests is to be brought to that disposition where you can receive and access the power of God to overcome, as Paul said. But the discipline here is the humility side of it. The, the great word for endurance is it's a great New Testament term and, and uh, several in the, in the word group. But the idea is to willingly place yourself under and stay there to be steadfast, persevering, remaining under, to endure, to willingly do it. Well, that's going to take the discipline of humility. Lord, I would love for this to go away, but Lord, you know perfectly what I need. And we've talked a lot about that. The scriptures say, as we talked about discipleship, that you are to engage in the one another's. I hope you know them. I hope you list them. I hope every time you find them in the scriptures, you write them down. You just make lists of them. This is your task. Romans chapter 12 says that we are to be about devoting ourselves to one another in those disciplines of love and kindness and forgiveness and admonition and encouragement. Body life is the centrifuge around which your life spins. That is the growth that happens in grace. I think when my wife and I got to our first uh, real solid ministry, we've been Christians maybe a couple of years, two or three years, and we just didn't know what to do but jumped in. You know, sometimes you, you come to a church like GIBC and you, you say, well, I don't know what to do. And then there are even some who come and, and they've got all these walls up and, 
And for two weeks, people uh, talked to them, but it was awkward. And then then they were happy no one talked to them. But then they leave, and you talk to them, and they say, well, no one really. It wasn't a warm place. I'm saying, you know what's happening there? You're, You're missing out on the discipline of grace. You know why? Because you didn't jump in. You know, I always tell people, just just throw off any restraint and go right up to the leadership and say, look, I'm a Christian and I want to learn how to grow in my faith. Where are the needs? I don't care if it's way over there in obscurity. Just put my hand to the plow. Let me serve. If you do that, people will be around you and suddenly you will find yourself with more interactive, engaging ministry in the one another's than you could have ever prayed for or, or went and found. It will come upon you. That is precisely why the Bible calls you to it. In the church, you shouldn't have to labor too hard to find it. The needs are right there. Just don't be afraid, but engage. It's a discipline of grace. And you know what? It does take discipline, doesn't it? Well, pastor, I did that, and I got burned. So go after it again. The Lord got burned, too, big time. I think you can handle it in his grace. Well, pastor, I I labored for a year in that ministry, and they just gave the whole thing to someone else and never even mentioned me. I got no credit. Yep. What's the Lord doing? putting you in a disposition to wean you off of your desire for credit. So shouldn't shouldn't somebody get some credit? Maybe, but that's not your call. That's God's call. The fact that you complain about it tells us that you're not done with the idolatry, are you? He's working on you. He's growing you in faith. A discipline of the Christian life is to engage. To engage. 2 Corinthians 9, as our time is going, 2 Corinthians 9 tells us that laying aside resources for the work of gospel ministry is a discipline. It's a discipline. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7 tells us that your heart ought to be ready to do it. I think I said in a Q&A recently that God doesn't care about the amount. That's true as long as your heart reflects what is given to us here in the ninth chapter of 2 Corinthians when Paul talks about the heart of believers. He says, verse 6, if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. What does that mean? He's just talking about the general sense in which you give everything away. You lay everything on the altar. Whatever God wants, he can have. Whatever he wants to use, he can have. Of course we have responsibilities and and means and resources to take care of life and all those things. That's, that is wonderful and a principle assumed in Scripture. But here he's talking about people who, who hoard and get stingy and misfocused and, and they're all about their little world and it's all about the things that they have and the things that they don't have. That kind of a person reaps sparingly. In what sense? Faith, a strength in faith, it could have come a lot quicker and a lot stronger had you been generous. And the blessings that come back on someone who opens their life up and gives themselves away for Christ, you you reap sparingly in that department, which is the saddest thing of all. But if you give your life to Christ and give it away, then he, he will take what he wants to use, and your heart is generous, and you will have such 
exponential, supernatural, spiritual things happen to your life, you will reap bountifully in that sense. But when you're talking about the stewardship of talents or, or skills or resources in terms of your money that you're to lay aside for the Lord's work, verse 7, you do as you purpose in your heart. So that is to say, no one knows what's going on in your heart but God, you and God. But you must do just as you purpose in your heart. You're not to do it grudgingly. Oh, don't, don't. Look, if you come and you're saying, oh, that church wants money and I got to write this check, don't, don't write it. Don't give. Don't. Don't do that to your faith. Don't weaken your faith by giving in a manner that God says you shouldn't do. Go before him. Pray about it. Lord, I want to be a good giver, but I don't want to, I don't want to be begrudging in it. Then he says, you shouldn't be under compulsion. Oh, appearances. What are people going to think? What's the church going to think? Somebody's doing the accounting. They know what I give. Oh, my goodness. You're not supposed to be thinking about any of that at all. Nobody on the inner workings of the stewardship of the church, when God's people give their money and we meet needs with it, nobody is collectively sitting around and assessing any of those things. We, we don't want to know any of what God does. God supplies the ministry through his people. We're, we're happy to take what he gives and thank him for it. But here he says you're not to be burdened by some something earthly, some some earthly compulsion or obligation? Notice why. Because, explanatory gar, because for God loves a cheerful giver. Just be cheerful. It's a grace in your life to open your life up and give. And did you know that outside of money, serving the body is to have the same disposition? Did you know that in in Acts chapter 20, when Paul was talking to the Ephesian elders, he said this. He said, I didn't shrink back from giving you the whole counsel of God. I served you night and day with tears, taught you, met your needs, catechized your, your life, shepherded you in the practice of the scriptures, helped you build a foundation for the church, appointed elders, those kinds of things in Ephesus. So a church was now flourishing because Paul gave himself away to it in all of those ways. didn't say anything about him giving him any money. But then he says that the Lord tells you that in giving this way, in giving of your life to the work of the gospel, while you're serving at your job, while you're serving your family, while you're doing civic things in, in, a, in some duty in your community, while you're meeting the needs of a neighbor, you are giving yourself away for the sake of the gospel. That's your heart. That's your drive. Paul said, when you do that, he said, that represents what the Lord said. We don't have it recorded in any of the gospels, but Paul says the Lord said it. It is more blessed to give than to receive. What does he mean? The blessing to your life comes in giving your life. What a discipline of grace that is. To give yourself away, not in a few things, but willing to give God anything he asks. Beloved, anything he asks. That's a discipline. Because you know what? Sometimes he's going to ask for that thing you don't want to give. Lord, what about all that stuff over there? It's over there on the give table. 
Go, go ahead, take it. I mean, I put a ton of stuff on there. You, you, you want that? Are you sure? Paul says it's a blessing to your life. It's a discipline of grace. It's a growing of your faith to give, to serve the body, not just giving resources, but time, skill, talent, heart, discipleship, love. It is a discipline of grace. And one final one ought to be the result of all of these, testifying of Christ. It is a grace that grows your faith to testify of Christ in those moment God, moments God gives you. Faith gets weakened when you fear men. However and whenever you're given an opportunity to testify of the grace that is within you, the hope that is within you, however and whenever, a sentence or two or an entire conversation, over coffee, spontaneous, or a planned meeting where you tried to ask the Lord to open a door and you went over and paid someone a visit. In some frontline evangelistic effort or a long-term friendship or a family member that you've been praying about for a lot of years and just trying to build a bridge. Whatever the context, you grow in grace and you grow in faith when that moment comes and you testify of Christ. And sometimes when you testify, the growth in your faith is going to come when you see the power of God work on that person's life. I don't know how many times people have said to me, do you think that that person is salvageable having gone through that kind of sin? Look, my answer is always the same. Are you kidding me? I have seen amazing things in the power of God in someone's life, let alone my own I have seen amazing things. No one can convince me that when you testify of Christ, what God promises uh, just only works with certain scenarios. The work of God to penetrate and open eyes is absolutely staggering, is it not? Do you know one of the wonderful means of grace at GIBC is our baptism service? Because we get to hear and have our faith encouraged by all those stories. And what do we say every time? Wow, I, I didn't see that coming. Wow, what, a, what an array of narratives of the grace of God. And your faith grows. And how many times have we gotten bold with unbelievers? Hey, come to this baptism service because you know what's going to happen. Or some straying child of yours or some straying professing believer. Hey, come to the baptism because we know, man, the power of God in testimony is rich. In that moment, you grow in grace because God shows you his power. It's also true that it grows your faith to testify of Christ when the response is hostility, rejection. You grow in grace. You grow in grace stretches your faith. It challenges you to believe God. Hey, God sometimes hardens. Sometimes he is planting a seed. Sometimes it'll be watered later. Sometimes you have to do it multiple times. Sometimes you have to say the same gospel to the same person over and over again. Sometimes he gives you a thousand opportunities. Not one seems to have done a single thing except continue to confuse or harden or that person continues to reject. And all the while your faith is being stretched. Lord, I know you work. I know you do. 
And all the while you're praying for God to move because you know he must move. And that creates in you an urgency to come pray once again. Lord, save them, would you? Like you saved me. I was blind. Now I see. I didn't deserve it. You came to me when I, when I couldn't come to you on my own. Could you do that with them? To testify of Christ rather than be silent or on the sidelines or fear man. It's a discipline of grace in our lives. Beloved, these are a privilege. To labor in them is the believer's life. Don't let anyone tell you that you sit down and you just contemplate the wonders of forgiveness and, and you're just going to be stirred up in some euphoric sense and you just wait and something will happen. Some buzz will come over you or temptation will just fall away or you're not going to have to strive in the battle. Don't let anyone tell you that. Paul said, I beat my body into submission, make it my slave. The power that mightily works within us is that by which we labor and strive. What is God doing in the labor? Humbling us. He's putting us in a disposition of being humbled, brought low, that he may build us up into usefulness. Let's bow together. Lord, thank you for these, these reminders. We have covered this every two or three years it seems and from several angles such a kindness from you thank you for the the wondrous truth of the church in which these things take place the corporate body thank you that our young generation of believers are learning a very strong biblical ecclesiology a doctrine of the church and their involvement. You will safeguard their spiritual life by these things. Thank you for breaking our hearts over what we don't do well yet and our stubbornness in some areas. Thank you for convicting us of the things that we still have yet to practice more faithfully. And yet thank you for the disciplines of grace, for the means that you gave us. Thank you that we can be a part of it because we have your spirit and we can grow in faith. Lord, keep us from the evil one. Strengthen us in the grace that is in Christ. And may we walk together in this walk of faith. We pray in your holy name. Amen.